Having a healthy baby depends on quality, accessible prenatal care. Not everyone has equal access to that. From SDPB Radio, today is Monday, October 16th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, a conversation about prenatal care for Indigenous women. We gather experts from across the state to talk about the health disparities and obstacles, but we'll also explore traditional birthing practices and intergenerational knowledge. And we'll ask what it means to reestablish your relationship to your body as part of the birthing process. Plus, SDPB's Jackie Hendry seeks updates on how we talk about and treat perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. South Dakota Focus is dedicating its season to South Dakota's children. All season long, you can find the most recent episodes on our website at sdpb.org watch. Host Jackie Hendry recently sat down with Susan Wicks, a behavioral health therapist at Sanford Health. They were talking about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Now, if you're not sure what that is or how communities can help, take a listen. We'll start here when Jackie Hendry asks Susan Wicks about what has changed in the postpartum depression conversation. Yeah, so the, the big change in my mind is that we don't just talk about postpartum depression anymore. We talk about perinatal mood and anxiety disorders because women in the perinatal period, which is from conception to the first year after delivery, they're at risk for way more than just depression, right? We know they're at higher risk for anxiety disorders. They're at higher risk for even o OCD and then a host of other mood disorders, including depression. So we like to talk about that in a broader way so that more women feel like they're not alone and, and what they're experiencing, if it's not straight depression, they can still sort of have a name for it and, and feel like they can reach out for help. Right, yeah. and not even just after birth either, during the entire pregnancy during process. During the entire pregnancy. I mean, what we see statistically is that, you know, women suffering with PMADs, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, about 25% of them, it starts in pregnancy. It's not just in the postpartum period. Wow. So. And I'm th I've been seeing uh, families are becoming so open about um, fertility struggles, I've noticed. Mm. And I'm just imagining you've, you've tried so hard for this child, and then you're experiencing these feelings. Right. Just an added layer, I have to imagine, of stigma and guilt. Absolutely, and, and women, we're already so good at that anyway, right? Feeling mm -hmm. guilty and shameful about whatever it is that we're feeling. And it does add this extra layer of, well, I must not be a good person. I must really not be meant to be a mom because a real mom wouldn't be feeling these things. Real moms feel these things all the time. Real moms struggle all the time. It is okay, and I think that makes, that makes everything just harder when women put those expectations on it. Yeah, and then yeah. harder to ask for help. Way harder to ask for help, yeah. Um, what are some of the most common risk factors? Are there particular characteristics about some women that make them, you know, at a higher, more susceptible to some of these mood disorders? Right, and so there's no hard and fast rules, but there are some things that we know put you at higher risk. And one of them is if you've had a history of mental health um, disorders in the past, right? So if you've had another bout of depression, if you have a pre-existing anxiety disorder, you're at a, a greater risk. 
um, if that's in your family history you're at greater risk especially if like a mom or an aunt or a sister has had perinatal mood anxiety stuff puts you at greater risk also we know single moms are at, at higher risk as are LGBTQ couples people parents they're at higher risk too and, and that probably has something to do with you know the isolation there and some of the social issues that they face. Right. Mm -hmm. and that brings me to that other side of the coin, maybe the protective factors against this. Right. And I'm kind of anticipating that community piece. <laughs> yeah, you know, and there, and there are protective factors, but also this strikes universally. Nobody's safe from developing a, a perinatal mood and anxiety disorder, right? Because a piece of it's chemical we know bodies go through so many shifting hormones and neurotransmitters and there's you know the trauma of delivery and so that's a piece of what happens and then the other pieces are sort of the psychological components of that person as well as the social support yeah. and so of those three pieces you can have great social support and you can be pretty you know psychologically healthy and determined to get through this and you can still struggle because of your chemistry and so we really need to get that out there because there isn't shame in this. And there isn't like, oh, if you ended up having mental health difficulties in your pregnancy, you did something wrong. You didn't do anything wrong, right? Good to go get that social support, good to work on yourself and make sure you're, you're healthy, but it, it can strike who it strikes and it's not your fault. And there's no hard and fast rules with these things, but if when is the point when you would advise women to reach out for help? What is that, that thing that is just the step beyond yeah. a normal low feeling? One of the important things to distinguish between is the baby blues and a postpartum mood disorder, mm -hmm. right? Baby blues is something that we know that between 60 and 80% of moms experience, and it really is very short term. So two days after delivery to about two weeks, sometimes people say three weeks. That's the baby blues. And what that looks like is just really big emotions. It's about your body readjusting, hormone levels readjusting, your body recovering from that trauma. And somebody who has the baby blues doesn't necessarily need to reach out for help. It's just gonna look like Oh, I saw a puppy on a commercial, and now I'm sobbing. Mm. But then the next minute I'm okay, and why was I sobbing about a puppy? And you can sort of talk yourself, yourself through that logically and still have these happy moments and still be doing okay, right? That's the baby blues that'll resolve on its own. Um, if that stuff lasts more than two weeks, might be something to talk to your, your medical team about. The real distinguishing piece, though, is about functioning. So if your emotions are so intense or so deep that you can't do the things that you wanna do in life, like take care of yourself, take care of the baby, get out of bed, feed yourself, um, engage in your relationships the way that you want to, or you just don't feel like yourself, those are sort of the big warning signs that would say, yeah, you should probably talk to your medical team. Mm -hmm. And then always, if there's thoughts of hurting yourself, hurting the baby, hurting anybody else, that we really want people to get immediate medical attention for. Right. Mm -hmm. um, something, a comment I've seen in some coverage on this, um, for some women that is a barrier to them reaching out for help is they're afraid that their kids are gonna be taken away. Yeah, yeah. 
it, it's, a, it's a real fear and I get where it comes from, but social services have done a really nice job in the last 20 years that I've been in this field of understanding more and more about mental health care and how necessary it is. Sometimes I'll talk to moms about, you know, if you were having a hemorrhage postpartum and needed to go to the hospital, your children would not be taken away from you. You'd find a temporary place for them to be while you were at the hospital. This is a medical issue just like that. And if there's something serious going on with your mental health, we can do everything we can, me, the medical team, you know, that they've been working with to help any social service people understand that it really is just a medical issue. Mm -hmm. It's a temporary thing and people can get better. Right. Yeah. I appreciate that answer a lot. Mm. Um, speaking of getting better, like what's, what's treatment look like for something like this? Yeah, I mean it can look very different for different people. You know, we know that there are medications that can be safe and effective during pregnancy, after pregnancy, nursing, right? There, there are absolutely medications that can be used and each woman and her doctor have to sort of weigh risk benefits. Um, some women don't want to do that for whatever reason. And so then it could look like talk therapy with somebody like me, or you do a combination of the two. You do some talk therapy, maybe get on those medications. Um, a lot of talk therapy for people struggling with peri perinatal mood and anxiety disorders is making sure that they build support around themselves making sure they're taking time for themselves and checking a lot of the expectations they have of motherhood. Mm -hmm. So many people go into motherhood thinking it's going to be beautiful and wonderful and they're going to be able to do everything all by themselves and be this perfect mom and that's not what it looks like. It's beautiful and wonderful but there's some awful moments and you're going to need help. Everybody needs help during that transition period. Yeah. Postpartum depression, the need for community, and the onset of the pandemic. Yeah. What are, what are some of the trends you've seen in, in the last three years? Right, so that was a really ugly time for moms. I transitioned um, within Sanford to my role in women's health in 2021, right at the beginning. I think I got my vaccine, and then the next week I was in my new role. And that was just so hard for moms. They were bringing baby home from the hospital instead, and instead of having people bring them meals and come check on them and come watch their other children and come give them advice, they were just alone. You know, and a lot of times then partners go back to work and they are just alone. And that's uh, so isolating and so hard. Um, in part because of those expectations we hold of motherhood and because we as women are really good at shaming ourselves. Um, women that struggled with that during the pandemic, they, they blame themselves. Why must not be doing this right? Why can't I feel good? Why can't I be enjoying my baby? It was a really ugly time for the whole world, especially when you were isolated at home with a baby. Yeah. Yeah. Um, how are you seeing some women combat that now that we're we're, we're, we're out and about more now. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've seen a whole lot of growth, um, even in the Sioux Falls community, of mom groups, right? Through churches, through other organizations. Even there's, there's apps that are like dating apps, but are for moms to find other mom friends. And I think, um, I think those women are really recognizing that they missed out on something 
big and they're trying to build a community around themselves. You can always catch up with the most recent episodes of South Dakota Focus on our website, sdpb.org watch. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, we are spending the rest of this hour talking about prenatal and postpartum care in South Dakota, focusing now on the care provided to Indigenous mothers and children. We have four guests convened across the state for this conversation. Joining us from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio, we have Zintkala Black Owl. Zintkala is a traditional Indigenous midwife. She's facilitator of the Hesapa Birth Circle, located in the Black Hills, serving all of the Ochete Shakoin territory. Sinkala, I invite you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Good morning. My name is uh, Zinkala Makhfeli. Um, happy to be here. Also with us from the Rapid City studio, Natalie Seitz Means. Natalie was a committee member for the South Dakota Advisory Committee to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. This is a committee that put forth a report on maternal mortality and health disparities of American Indian women in South Dakota. Natalie, welcome. You can introduce yourself as well as you th- if you like. Hello. Um, I'm really happy to be here today to talk about this important topic. And my name is Natalie Steitz-Means, and I'm a tribal member from the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Also with us in Rapid City, Amanda Youngers. Amanda is a certified nurse midwife at the Great Plains Tribal Health Leaders Board at the Oyate Health Center. She also spent 13 years practicing as a midwife in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. Amanda, welcome as well. Thanks for being here. Hi, good afternoon. Thank you so much for having us. I think this is a very pertinent and important topic for all of us to address today. Yeah, thank you for that. Now over here in Sioux Falls in SDPB's Kirby Family Studio, we have Michaela Sieber. Michaela is the CEO of South Dakota Urban Indian Health. She's a former adjunct instructor at the University of South Dakota where she taught Native American communities and public health. Welcome back. Say hello. Hello. Yes. Uh, happy to be here. Uh, I am a tribal member of the Sistan Wapatan Oyate, and I've been CEO at Urban Indian Health for um, three years now. All right. Let's get started. And um, just because we have four voices on different sides of the state and we can't all see each other, you're welcome to jump in and interrupt. But if you do, go ahead and let listeners know who's speaking so they can kind of keep track on uh, who all these powerful female-sounding voices are. (laughs) Um, And uh, Natalie, I want to start with you. Tell me a little bit about um, what we know and what we don't know about disparities on maternal mortality and health. Um, We study it, but not in a way that is meaningful and sustained. Where do you want to begin with that, Natalie? Hmm. Well... The maternal mortality and health disparities of American Indian women in South Dakota report that we issued in July of 2021 um, identified a broad spectrum of shortcomings and challenges that are facing Native women in South Dakota, uh, both rooted in rural, being rural, being remote, as well as in being indigenous and facing uh, racial discrimination Um, And so I often, and we heard 
through the course of uh, at least four hearings, I want to say, if you, um, and this was during the pandemic, mm-hmm. we heard from a number of advocates, health professionals and providers on the issues relating to maternal mortality and prenatal care um, ended up being definitely a focus that was important. Um, I do think that there's an adequacy of data, um, adequacy. Um, a lot of times the inadequacy of data is something that is in academic perception mm-hmm. um, and rather than, you know, what the, re- the reality of everyday indigenous women who are pregnant who need access to health care um, to preserve their lives and the lives of their infants because both incidences are extraordinarily high for Lakota women in particular in South Dakota, and that is dying during childbirth or having an an infant die during childbirth. And it's overall high in South Dakota. A big part of that is our lives. Hmm. So you think we have, what I'm hearing you say, we have enough information to make meaningful change. Did I hear that correctly? Absolutely. Zitkala, I want you to jump in here and tell us a little bit about the Hesapa Birth Circle um, first and how that intersects with the work that you do and the overall obstacles that we have to getting good prenatal care and uh, good maternal care. Um, Thank you. Uh, I think that um, a lot of times when we look at the state of experience, the landscape of birth, the um, approach is to medicalize it more and to um, maybe bring in more hospitals, uh, more medical care, um, get women more medical care. And our approach at Hesapa Birth Circle is more rooted in community and rooted, It's we call ourselves a grassroots um, organization because we're rooted in um, being with the community. Um, our care is rooted in more of a wraparound, um, getting to know people. People know that they can reach out to us for um, more than just their needs in birth and in reproduction. They can reach out to us for needs um, that have to do with their quality of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's definitely more a holistic approach to prenatal care and also very focused on bringing knowledge to the people, bringing the knowledge of and skill of how to, of what's going on when you're pregnant, what's going yeah. on in your reproductive cycle. Um, because most people go to the doctor because they don't have any real idea about what's going to happen to them while they're pregnant. They, they don't know um, what they need to be eating um, or how to take care of themselves. And that puts people in a position um, where they m- must have medical care. They must have a doctor. And that creates more danger, especially in rural, um, remote communities like where we live in South Dakota. So let's dive deeper into that, Sinkala. That knowledge might have been what you received from your mother or from your grandmother or from your aunt or from your sister. And because of boarding schools, because of genocide, because of, uh, you know, racism and oppression, sometimes that knowledge was erased intentionally. Um, How difficult is it for Native women today to 
tap into the human <laughs> relative resources that are going to help them navigate a journey versus just an app on your phone that would tell you what nutrition you need at the first trimester. <clears throat> I think our biggest um, obstacle and um, struggle is, is when we go to develop these relationships that have been severed, we have to interact with trauma. We have to interact with pain. Um, and we have to create space for people to um, create relationship with each other and with the information, with the knowledge. Um, we do that by uh, this year. We create. We, this year we completed the second annual traditional birthwork gathering here in the Black Hills, and that's a five-day intentional gathering. So, um, it, it takes time. It takes time mm -hmm. being together. The more time that we spend together, um, we do. Um, we do need to like meet more regularly. Um, we also have support circles and groups throughout the year, where we just gather um, throughout the month and cook and spend several hours together just talking and visiting, um, sharing song, sharing birth stories, sharing struggle. Um, and in those spaces, people access healing that they need to be able to tap into that knowledge that is within all of our bodies. It's in our DNA, it's in our cells, it's in our memory. Um, so I would say that we, while we have this struggle of overcoming the trauma that is so close and recent in our lives and still happening, we also have this immense gift of um, being very close to these memories. Mm -hmm. um, most women, when we sit in circle and talk, um, will share that all of their grandmothers were born at home. Um, maybe their mom was born at home. Um, I have uncles that will tell me that they were born at home. And oftentimes um, it's surrounding being the winter time, being born um, out of necessity at home. And I find that in places where this knowledge is strong still and um, easier, I wouldn't say easier, but cl closer to tap into are in communities at, where birthing at home has be, has been a necessity. Oh. It's been a choice that's been preserved out of necessity, which in our communities, you do hear stories, more stories of women still birthing at home just purely out of necessity. They can't get to the hospital fast enough or the weather permits because we have extreme winter weather here where you can't travel three hours to a hospital to yeah. give birth to your baby. So I'd love to come back to that a little bit later. Um, and talk about the opportunities of that and then also the obstacles and challenges of that because that would mean different solutions, right? Um, Absolutely. But I want to bring Amanda into the conversation now. Amanda, you spent more than a decade as a midwife in Pine Ridge and you're working um, with the Tribal Health Leaders Board now. Tell me a little bit about what's, what you're seeing change, what sort of trends you're seeing. I have seen so many things change, but a big part of it is the revolving circle of providers, especially in Indian Health Service. Women come in and they don't know who they can trust or what their provider is gonna say because of a revolving system of care. Mm -hmm. And so women don't necessarily have that one OBGYN or that one midwife that can really answer their questions. And the person that's providing care may not have local knowledge of what to buy at the grocery store or the actual cost of shopping at a local grocery store on the reservation or how far it actually takes to get to Walmart and Chadron or Rapid City and the obstacles that 
our surrounding, even just socioeconomic things of such as travel, somebody might want to get prenatal care, but there's only one car for a whole family. And if somebody works, the chance of an income is going to be more important sometimes than accessing a prenatal visit because they also may not have childcare for their other children. So there's lots of factors um, in women being able to access well woman care, prenatal care, and well child care because of transportation. We know in South Dakota that 56% of counties, not only just reservations, but across the state, are defined as maternity care deserts. And that means that there is no reproductive health provider in that county. Mm -hmm. Um, In South Dakota, that statistic is about 32%. So we're almost double what the rest of the nation is facing. Amanda, my question that pops into my head is how did we get here? And that might be the wrong question. It might be an impossible question. But do you have any thoughts of how do you get to a place where those are the numbers? And I'm not saying they're acceptable, but they're accepted in some way because we're not seeing sweeping change or, you know, massive upheaval. So in some ways, this is allowed to happen. Do you have a sense of of why? I think the urbanization of medicine and what Zinkala also said is the medicalization of birth have really forced women and families to birth at bigger facilities. On the same hand, tort claims and the fear of litigation on the birth side of the medical community has also caused urbanization of women's health and obstetrics so that most hospitals you have small town hospitals like Kadoka or Martin or Gordon, Nebraska that used to deliver babies and now don't do so because of the fear of litigation, the amount that insurance costs to provide malpractice for providers and the necessary means to provide surgical options should a cesarean section or neonatal resuscitation or emergency services occur. So we now only have you know, 23% sorry, 23% of uh, counties that actually offer birthing facilities in the state. So the modernization and urbanization of that medicine has pushed out family practitioners and midwives from practicing. Mm-hmm. It was not just until recently, maybe five years ago, that even nurse midwives were allowed to practice independently in South Dakota without a physician co-signing their practice agreement. So that really limited the amount of nurse midwives that could provide care in these rural communities. Mm-hmm. Additionally, um, even though our, our medical school in South Dakota trains family practice physicians to do deliveries, many hospitals that these providers are gonna go out to don't offer the birthing services that women need Thus, they're not practicing that care um, to maintain the proficiency to continue to do birth and cesarean sections. Um, Additionally, our South Dakota Medicaid, unlike some of our neighbors like Minnesota, don't reimburse for out-of-hospital delivery. Um, A birth in general in a facility might cost $6,000 and upwards. However, a home birth if South Dakota Medicaid was to reimburse that, 
is only reimbursed at a rate of $300, or that's the facility fee that is reimbursed to the provider. So for birth centers that are delivering babies, the women that most need the care through Medicare and Medicaid are not reimbursed at a rate that they would be in, <coughs> in a hospital. Hmm. Michaela, over here on the east side of the state, South Dakota Urban Indian Health, what do you want to add to what these women have already said that also puts in context mm -hmm. your work? Yeah, um, they've provided such a great picture um, of so many things. Um, I, I do sit on our state's maternal mortality review committee and something that surprised me is that so many of the deaths happening after delivery aren't aren't related to the delivery itself. There's there are other factors that um, there's suicides, homicides, accidental deaths. Um, that surprised me a lot, and so that shows me that our systems aren't where they need to be to provide those wraparound cares for our relatives, um, and just adds on to the fact that we our systems here in Sioux Falls. So we our our clinic is in Sioux Falls and Pier. Um, so we those are our urban um, quotations around urban that Pier right. <laughs> Pier is urban. Um, but our, we see our systems, our health systems, our social service systems, they're not trauma-informed <coughs> or culturally um, sensitive to our, our relatives that are going there for care. So we see people avoiding care. Um, we, can't, we don't provide any prenatal services at our clinics right now. So we refer out and we hear back that they won't go to those appointments or they um, interacted with providers there that were racist or didn't understand their circumstances, or just assumed they were drunk Indians, or were using drugs, or all of these things, and so that contributes to not wanting to receive services, and, and also all of the things Amanda said about funding. We are so underfunded at Urban Indian Health. We get um, like less than a quarter of Medicaid reimbursements that other health systems get, um, so even if we were to be able to provide prenatal services at all we would still get so under like we're so underfunded um, we would still be struggling to try to provide the services that we could um, but what we're really trying to work on in our little bubble is training to these other systems so that we can try to move the needle on making sure that when we do refer our relatives out is that they're not getting discriminated against when they go to the other health systems to get care. So it's a systems problem overall, and that's something our colonization created and our medical schools aren't helping in any way with not providing cultural competency care when our students are going through their classrooms. Yeah, let's give some examples, Michaela, on what you know what that cultural competency mm -hmm. competency might look like. It might be something as simple as changing your position mm -hmm. during labor. It could be that easy. It could be about family members coming in and yeah. being present with you in a way that is important to you culturally. What else? Because this is not an mm -hmm. elaborate yeah. change, it seems. Some of these are very basic dignity issues yeah. to me. One of my staff members went to um, an appointment once, and the receptionist asked, uh, what's your Medicaid number? And she isn't on Medicaid. There's nothing wrong with being on Medicaid, but just immediately seeing a Native person and assuming that they're on Medicaid, and that just immediately put her on the defensive 
of, you know, why am I here if you just see me and assume one thing of me? And so there's just so many things that we need to reset as a system and as a society of what we think of when we see Native people. And that is just one thing that happens to my staff when they go into shelters as they're trying to help people. They think that my staff are there to seek services at the shelters and not there to assist our relatives in getting out of those shelters to get into homes. So our town is struggling. We're in a really big battle right now. Um, and it's just we're going into these places and providing 101. You know, how many tribes are in the state? What kind of what languages are said? Right. What is smudging? What does that mean? Why is it important? So those are the steps we're taking right now um, mm. on a base level. But it's hard work. We're going to take a quick break and come back and have more of this conversation um, when we come back and really focus on some of uh, the, the empowering things about a childbirth. When I think of childbirth, there are so many wonderful things of reclaiming your own body and beginning a family. And um, let's talk about that when we come back. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. We'll return to our conversation now. Our guests are Zinkala Black Owl, Natalie Seitz Means, Amanda Youngers, and Michaela Siebers. And Zinkala, I've been reading about uh, your birth story, which I'm hoping you'll share um, with our listeners in whatever way you feel comfortable doing that. But I remember becoming a mother. And now, of course, um, as a woman with, uh, you know, cisgender. Uh, Northern European ancestors, like, and I had health insurance. I came at it from a like, place of great privilege, but it was the most empowering, um, you know, return to your body, return to, to who you are as a person experience for me. Um, that seems to be a basic right for anyone giving birth to be in that space as much as possible. Um, you also have some incredible stories of giving birth in, in ways that might be unexpected to people. Tell us a little bit about what, what's possible with childbirth. It doesn't have to be a nightmare. <clears throat> no, no, it doesn't at all. And I think that too often it is, um, too often it is a traumatic experience for our relatives. Um, I'm a mother of seven so I, I do have several <laughs> birth stories, um, as you mentioned. Um, I, I would like to just re really quickly go back. You know, my first um, births were in Oregon. I, I grew up a lot of my younger years in Oregon and moved there as a um, young adult. And in Oregon, um, not only are the, is midwifery normalized and highly available, um, it's uh, having access to midwifery through state-issued insurance is also very normalized mm -hmm. and available. And um, also, if you were a member of a federally recognized tribe there, you got what was called, um, this was 20 years ago, you got what was called an open card for OHP, and that was the state-issued insurance that everybody could sign up for. And so at 20 weeks, you could transfer to any provider you wanted. So it was easy to go to a midwife with your OHP card and have your birth be fully paid for. Um, so that, that in itself is a privilege that I was able to experience. Um, I also myself was born at home. Mm -hmm. So I grew up hearing the story of my own birth and my mom's experience with pregnancy um, from my father. I heard a lot of it from my father because I was raised by my father. Um, 
so birth and the experience of home birth was very normalized for me growing up. And when I became pregnant with my first child, it was instinctual to, I didn't consider a hospital birth at all. I like, I'm going to birth where I, where I was born. Um, and it was other people's opinions that, mm. it, that I quickly learned were the most detrimental to that experience. It was the outside influence of other people's fears for me. Um, even people who, I had aunts who were lay midwives, who had delivered cousins and who I grew up all my life knowing as midwives. And they were, um, they weren't, you know, they weren't delivering babies. They weren't attending births anymore. So, um, you know, their advice to me was to go to the hospital for my first birth. And it was my father who told me that, um, it was because I didn't have what uh, medical professionals referred to as a proven pelvis. I hadn't, I hadn't given birth yet, <laughs> so they weren't sure that I could actually do it. And so <laughs> I, um, even, my, even my OBGYN that I had been seeing since I was 18, who was from um, Denmark, was very kind enough to explain to me at six months that she would not, she could not guarantee attending my birth and that she would, um, I, that in her country, Everybody gives birth at home, and she understands my desire to do that, but that in America, medicalized birth is the norm, and that birthing in the hospital is the norm, and that she couldn't, as a medical professional, support me through that. And huh. I left her practice and started to, and that's when I started my journey with only seeing midwives for the rest of my pregnancies. And I, the week I was due, I received a letter from her practice um, stating that I was putting myself in danger and putting my unborn child's life in danger and that she needed to tell me these things. And it was very devastating for me at 22 years old to receive this letter from a medical professional who I trusted so much um, to, to, and my midwives at the time explained to me that she was covering her own liability yeah. because she needed to make sure that as a medical professional that she told me these things because of the way liability works and the way that we, the relationship that we have with reproduction, with birth, with the experience of birth in this country is so encased in fear and so colonized that um, that was how her mind worked. She was, she needed to make sure that I might not come back around and try to blame her for not warning me of the dangers of birthing at home. Um, and really the only danger was her fear, mm. was the anxiety and fear and emotional disrupt that I felt from her letter. And my midwives explained all these things to me and helped me to understand it so that I didn't, I, I could put it away and not um, give it any more power. But fast forward, um, you know, to my seventh, sixth and seventh births here in South Dakota, um, I gave birth unassisted here because I couldn't access a midwife. I would have loved to have a midwife, but there were none. There were no practicing home birth midwives that were available and accessible to me um, because I couldn't get state insurance that was going to pay for that birth. And I also didn't qualify at the time. And there's no options at IHS. So I chose to rely on the knowledge that I had gathered from my previous five births to give birth to my sixth and seventh children. And um, one of those child, one of those babies is Minnie Wachoni that, um, you know, the world knows about. Um, mm -hmm. She was born in 2016 at the um, Dakota Access Pipeline Resistance Camp. And um, she was born in a teepee along the river um, in early morning hours um, in our camp where her, her dad was sleeping in the bed with our other baby. 
Um, and I brought her into the world in a quiet, peaceful, um, very powerful way. And um, I do believe that she, that that birth um, I was shared with um, by Goji Cook, that those kinds of births are like a form of resistance and um, the resistance to the medical industrial complex that um, right now controls our experience with birth. It's the norm here in, in American culture. And um, yeah, mm -hmm. that, that my experience with birth was definitely every birth brought me closer to myself, brought me closer yeah. to trusting my own intuition um, and my body and yeah. knowing my body and knowing how my body functions and also um, getting care for my children from traditional midwives, from home birth midwives is a completely other experience as well. As yeah. a mother, um, I was guided to trust my own intuition and to um, to lean into the experience because I know my baby better than anybody. And that's what my midwives would reflect back to me, just like they reflect back to me in birth and pregnancy that I know my body better than they do. And so they were relying on my knowledge of my of what I was telling them about what was going on, rather than when you're in the hospital, the doctor is telling you what's going on with your body. And you're relying on their knowledge of what they tell you based on tests that they yeah. run and different um, technologies that they use. Yeah. So in one instance, it's a completely out-of-body experience where you're relying on knowledge and information completely outside of yourself. And on the other experience, you learn to rely and trust completely on the knowledge of your own body and people who reflect back to you that they trust your body. Amanda, what do you see, what have you seen as a midwife over the years, this experience of women in birth that can be um, such a privilege to attend to, I'm guessing? Yeah, I completely agree with Zinkala that that knowledge that's generational for these women, for every woman, um, to trust. And I think trying to tap into that generational knowledge as well as um, support is incredibly important. We can't ignore the fact that we have a lot of young mothers in um, Indian country as well as in the state that may not have supportive families. They may have been kicked out of their family. They may be living with in-laws that they're not necessarily comfortable with. And so getting that birth knowledge um, can be very, very difficult. And so I see a lot of young mothers coming into birth with fear. Yeah. And through my years of practice, just teaching them. I mean, I, I say to them while they're pushing, like, think of all the grandmothers that are just surrounding <laughs> you right now. All of these women, or they come to me in prenatal care and they're like, I don't know if I can give birth. I said, or, or their partner will be like, she's moving a couch. She can't move that couch. I said, think of your ancestors packing up the whole travoy and the camp in the middle of winter and riding, you know, miles to set up another camp. And they were pregnant. And you wouldn't be here if that wasn't safe. So trusting your body as a safe carrier for that child is incredibly important. And yeah, you can move that couch. Yeah, you can, you know, go walk the dog and lift those other children. Um, because empowering women to use their bodies and trust their bodies is so incredibly important. I think our medical community has a sense of distrust. Even myself, I experience discrimination. You know, I always joke that I'm as white as Wonder Bread 
but I had come up to Rapid City after an unsuccessful birth at home with my first child in Pine Ridge, and I hadn't progressed, and I, you know, it's been two days since my water had broken, and I knew my OBGYN, and I transferred to the hospital, and she knew I was coming, and I went to the emergency room, and I checked in. I said, my name is Amanda. I'm here to see my doctor for an induction because I've my water's broke for two days. And I could hear the labor and delivery nurse on the back phone of triage say, two days? <laughs> like, where is she coming from? You know, and of course, because I was coming from Pine Ridge, and because I... You know, they didn't know that I was a nurse midwife, that I'd been giving myself antibiotics with my nurse midwife at home, that I was transferring in the safest place possible. But because of where I was coming from or because they didn't know that I was educated, I faced discrimination right at the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine how our other relatives are treated if they're coming from a place um, where they haven't been able to access care. And so it's not that they don't want to access care, it's because they don't have the access. And that's a huge issue in our, especially in Western South Dakota, where distances, most women have to travel 70 to 100 miles to go to the nearest birthing facility. Yeah. You know, this is Natalie. Thank um, you. Yeah. I think I, I wanted to say that, you know, your previous speaker had, or guest had, mentioned DSS removal being a fear in terms of mm -hmm. seeking postpartum and prenatal care, mental health care in particular. But that's like a very realistic fear that won't be reassured by a provider because of mandatory reporting laws that are facing indigenous women. Mandatory reporting laws that basically require a provider to interpret uh, active drug use as child abuse. And so you know, if based on, you know, their reasonable suspicion and their mechanisms for reporting, I have been present when our Native babies have been removed from mothers, um, and not just based on positive drug tests, but on suspicions on uh, a blood cord test for six weeks. Mm. Um, they want those results, and then they put the children, the babies, the infants into foster care. Um, even and that itself that causes huge risk factors for both the newborn and the mother, mm -hmm. um, and we see that general lack of care in the death, the the, the fatalities of indigenous women um, who've given birth, who have small children, who have infants, um, you know, and I I think I think that can't be. Um, underestimated in yeah. terms of being a deterrent and and not yeah. just a deterrent but a suspicion so I'm sitting there with mm -hmm. my provider when I'm pregnant and um you know and I bring in my baby for my six-week check with you know her her little well baby check mm -hmm. and her dark spots her work um her blue spots were interpreted as bruises mm -hmm. and right when I heard the nurse practitioner begin to say that I like went into his I didn't get hysterical, <laughs> I got mean. <laughs> but I went into a protective defensive mode that I shouldn't have to be in when I'm accessing yeah. healthcare for me and my baby in which I know, um, just like Amanda mentioned, and that, that that is going to deter you and that frames your whole yeah. interaction, I, you know, there in that provider office. And I'm gonna I found becoming a mother, go ahead. Yeah, I'm Sorry. just gonna, we are gonna run up on time. Um, and this is an incredibly powerful group of people that we have across the state here. So we're going to reach out to you after the show. 
um, see about getting you to come back and continuing this conversation. Um, South Dakota Focus uh, listeners is going to focus on the American trial throughout the entire season. So we're going to have plenty of com- uh, opportunities to dig deeper into what it is like to give birth in the state, to raise children in the state. Um, so more on this later. Thank you to all my panelists today. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. <laughs>